Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space. The only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. In today's episode, we're going to be talking my city. And not just in today's episode. Today's episode and next week's episode. Because this game is massive in a way. It's also small in a way. But we're covering a Reiner Knizia legacy game. And there's a lot in this box. There's a whole campaign and there's also an eternal mode. And interestingly, we found enough history that we felt like we could spread this game out across two episodes, really give it some room to breathe. So in this first part, we're going to be talking about the eternal game and the history and development of my city a little bit from interviews we found from the doctor himself, the rhino himself. Uh, And in next episode, part two, it's going to be a deep dive on the campaign of my city. And you might be surprised to hear that Jake and I are dedicating the entire first part to the eternal game of my city. Uh, I think when people think of my city, the first thing they probably think about is the campaign game. And there's a good reason why that's the case. But we hope, I think, we'll get Jake's opinion on this soon, but I hope that maybe we can shift your perspective and uh, make you think that these two are equally worth your time and consideration. So today's episode is going to be a deep dive of the Eternal game, which is really the core game of my city itself as well. Brandon, I've got a question for you. Did you covertly turn this into a Rhino Kniz deep dive podcast exclusively? I'm just thinking (laughs) it's going to be three straight episodes of deep dive. (laughs) Going three straight weeks. The happiest accident of all time. Yeah, because it wasn't initially planned this way, but as y'all know, last week I was unavailable to record. So I I do want to say a huge thank you to you and especially Maya for stepping in and recording that brilliant episode on Babylonia. I think that folks who listened really enjoyed that. And if you haven't listened, I would encourage you to go back and check that out because it's a sweet episode, not just because there's great content in there, but also because it's just really fun to listen in on your kind of banter and dynamic with Maya. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it was so awesome sort of getting to hear your take on an episode of Decision Space that you've never been on, Jake. Uh, and thank you as always for editing that episode. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm curious. Are you excited to try Babylonia? You know, it's interesting. I, I don't know that I'm just going to be brutally honest here. I don't know that the podcast made me more or less excited to try it. I think I'm, and I think that's largely because you've just talked about it so much on this podcast with me. And I've just like resigned myself to the fact that we're going to play it at kind of first available opportunity when you come in. So that's just set in my mind. So, you know, I've, it's just is what it is. I'm just going to like play it, let it wash over me, and I'll give you my thoughts then. Resigned yourself? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, that's exciting. And I'm going to, come to terms with this resignation over the course of our us recording this episode of my city uh, but i do want to say jake really quickly before we get into it a little bit more sort of two things one is that because my city is a legacy game more than maybe any game we've ever covered there are going to be some minor spoilers in this episode and in the next episode i think there's mostly going to be spoilers in the next episode where we dive into the campaign but if you're really sensitive about any spoilers at all there's a few little pieces of things that could get pulled into this episode. So that's just an FYI. I think most of the elements that get pulled into the Eternal game, you would see in the first handful of plays uh, of My City. So I wouldn't consider them too spoilery, but we just wanted to share that with you. Do you think that's a fair warning, Jake? Totally fair warning. I don't think people should be too concerned. I don't, for me personally, I don't think that the spoilers as they exist in this game are going to be detrimental to anyone's play of it. It's not like there's big story notes that like there are in some other kind of legacy style games. It's more just mechanisms that are revealed over time and much more of that discussion in next week's episode but to my mind you should not feel nervous about diving into this episode having not played my city at all yeah totally okay some other exciting housekeeping actually why don't you tackle this one i've been talking a lot all right yeah last housekeeping note here we just wanted to celebrate that we hit last night as of recording this a huge milestone for our podcast 100,000 downloads That's just an incredible milestone, something, you know, that I'm super proud of. We've worked really hard and had a lot of fun on putting this show together over the past two years. So hitting those milestones is just an important reminder to me that 
wow, you know, a lot of people really do listen to this show, um, which can be kind of easy to forget sometimes. And so, you know, I need to keep that in the back of my mind. And and it's just what an incredible privilege and what an incredible thing that so many people are tuning into this show, you know, week in, week out, or once a month or whatever. And uh, it means so much to us. So we just wanted to encourage you to, you know, join in on that celebration. If you happen to be playing games with folks Maybe mention this show to them or, you know, share it in, you know, wherever you're discussing games with people. We'd love to have even more people find and discover the show, of course. But, you know, really, we just want to celebrate this milestone. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, when we started, you sort of never know if the projects you work on will kind of have legs. And I've been so excited that Decision Space that doing this with you, Jake, really has had legs. The community that's developed around it and sort of the things that we've uncovered through our conversations, uh, everything we sort of, I find that the more we work on this mission, the more I'm excited to keep working on it. And this is another milestone that just makes me even more excited. So I hope if you enjoy this show at this 100K milestone, you'll help us continue to have uh, more growth just by telling maybe people you play games with that about the show that, you know, it's this growing podcast that you think they should check out and maybe they'll stick around and we'll get to keep working on this show until we hit a million downloads. 10 million. Totally. Totally. And yeah, it's, it's like when you start a new project, like a podcast like this, you don't expect to hit a hundred thousand downloads. I mean, it's just such a big number, but obviously it's what we were going for. So to, to make it that far is just awesome. So just want to like revel in that for a moment. And of course that is 100% thanks to all of our listeners. So you listening to this, you're a huge part of that. So thank you very much. And I think also just, you know, testament to the show, it's going to continue to adapt and change as we go. I think that it's in a stronger place now than it's been before. But I think as our, you know, experience with this show changes, both on like the creating it and life circumstances change too, it's going to continue to grow and adapt. And, uh, you know, I'm super excited about the future of the show. That was such a good transition about growing and adapting to my city, a game that organically grows and adapts. So Jake, do you want to give your ratings and review of my city? Why don't you go first on this one? I get to go first? Oh, yeah. no. I'm still oh, thinking no. about my... <laughs> okay, good. I thought this was like, I'm resigned to play Babylonia. Now I have to break it to Brendan that I hate my city. Anyway, I'm going to jump into mine and we'll see what Jake thinks. So here's what I have. My City breaks new ground as a masterpiece showcase in what a light legacy game can be. Not only this, the eternal game presented alongside the campaign is a hidden gem polyomino game that should be more widely played and discussed and captured captures many of the best parts of the game's core systems while delivering something charming, delightful, agonizing, and endlessly fun that feels fresh and new and all on its own. So I give this game a 9.5 out of 10. I also, I don't know where this would fit in the show, Jake, so I'm slipping it in here. If this game had been on Windows 95, the Eternal game or the Legacy, I think it'd be world famous. You know, like a pre-install back in the 1990s, I think that everyone in my family and everyone in everyone's family who had a computer right when computers were getting cheap would be obsessed with my city. But that's like an aside. I want to hear your ratings and review. Yeah, I am really having a hard time with this one. It's a game that I really, really enjoy. I've loved playing it. So let's get that out of the way. It's not a negative review from me, but I think it also feels a little bit like a strong like when I'm playing it, as opposed to the really elevated plays that mm. I get out of some of my other favorite games. So it's just, I've, I feel like my city, especially talking about the Eternal game, is is just a really strong like. And it's, you know, a game that I enjoy playing. I've brought out to, to new friends. I don't think I would ever turn down a game of it, which puts it right in like the eight to 8.5 range for me, not necessarily being like the game that I would always like pull out first and want, want to go to uh, if given the opportunity perhaps to play something else in ideal circumstances. But I think it's elevated just a little bit higher than that because it does offer the legacy campaign in the box as well. And I don't always want to bring like value into mm. these ratings, but I think the fact that you're getting the all of these diverse experiences as you play that legacy game does want me to bump it up just a hair, even though I think some of those games are flawed. More on that later. So taking it all together, I'm going to 
bump it just a little bit higher than where I'm at, I think, on the legacy game purely. And I'll give it an 8.75 out of 10. Nice. You were, you were kind of slow rolling it there. I feel like that's a really high score for it me. It is high. That's what I, I said at the front. Like, I really loved playing this game. I really enjoy this game. And I think I'll continue to play this game in the, you know, eternal mode. It's in my collection. Yeah. I'm super happy to have it there. And I think it'll get a lot of play in the future. But it, do you know what I'm saying? Kind of with like the like strong like aspect of it. I do. I think it's, we'll probably get into this more. I think that one of the. I'm just going to say really, a nine. I don't like seven. Oh, we bumped up a, 0.25 yeah. ahead. Let's there go, we go. Nine. Nine. Okay, okay. nine feels really fair. I'm I think happy we'll probably. With that. Yeah. I, that's awesome. I think we'll probably, especially when you take into account that you were kind of rating two games and they both sort of elevate each other in a way, or yeah. two game experiences. I think we'll get into this more too, but it's really important to emphasize that My City is a very light game. It's a light gameplay experience. It's a light legacy game, a light campaign. And the spatial puzzle of it is fairly light too. And I think that some of that, of what I'm hearing from you, might be that you tend to prefer slightly heavier spatial puzzles to some extent so it's like a little bare bones for something that maybe you would want to go back to over and over but it's just so tight and so good that it's kind of like well it's that good i guess i'm here for it you know it's like the eternal game is like an 8.5 and the legacy game is like an 8.5 and you get them both in a box you know yeah so So like two 8.5 experience for the price of one that's a nine yep that's what i'm saying basically i think for both of us the Eternal game was sort of like an afterthought that we didn't even consider. I think without our Discord community, and I'll even specifically call out JC, one of our uh, Discord members who's really extolled the virtues of the Eternal game there, I might never have even tried it. I probably would have because of for covering on this podcast purposes. But after playing the Legacy game, I think I was in the camp of just thinking, that's my city. I've played it. It was very fun. And on to the next thing. You know, I I might have never flipped over the board and tried out the Eternal game. Totally. Uh, Especially because, so let's talk really quickly, Jake, about how much each of us have played it, played Mm -hmm. the game, because I think that'll help contextualize for our viewers. So I have played individual, 98 individual games of my city. I've played, no, I played more than that. I played more than that. (laughs) How many times did I play with, I've played the physical, I've played 102 games of my city. So I've played, 74 games virtually, which I played one full campaign with you, one full campaign with Maya virtually uh, on Board Game Arena. Digitally, I should say. It wasn't virtual. It was digital. Then I played the full campaign physically and a fair amount of in-person Eternal games. But I mostly played Eternal uh, digitally on Board Game Arena. So a nice mix and match, but over 100 plays. So there's a huge huge game for this Yeah, wow. That's a lot. Okay, this might be collectively our highest played game. Not if you count all your Star Realms played, because you played like 500 Star Realms games or something. But, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, for whatever, like the highest low, what is that? Like the mean, median, the median or something? Of what? I don't know. I'm trying to say like the... F- oh, like the like number the of few, plays? The most fewest plays, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The most fewest plays? What do you mean? <laughs> like the most okay. plays per I'm gonna, episode? I'm gonna have to cut this. I'm saying like out of the two of us, this is the highest played okay, game yeah. for the person who has played it less than the other person. How would sure, you sure, say sure. that in an eloquent way? Like the the highest minimum between the two of us of any game we've covered <laughs> yeah, on the show by far. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So I've probably played it myself. How many time how many games is in the legacy game? Twenty-four. 24. So I played that with you and then I've played the Eternal game 15 times and then I've played the probably another 24 combined games because I played the first half of the game uh, in my physical copy with Bridget and then I'm now Bridget is out of the country for a little while uh, for work and we've been playing on Board Game Arena and we're about halfway through again nice. on, on Board Game Arena. So I guess that probably puts me in like the realm of 70 plays. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a ton of plays between the two of us. So obviously, this is a game we really enjoy. That's I want to make sure we save time at the end for our deep dive, Jake. And I want to hit these history points, too. So maybe I can quickly get into them and and talk through them. I'll leave you to it. 
I want to highlight that this is a Cosmos game. Cosmos is a company that Dr. Kanitia has worked with for a long time. So some other Kanitia games that have been published alongside Cosmos are Lost Cities, uh, Ingenious, one of his sort of his Spiel des Jahres winning tile laying game. It's pretty huge in Germany. And then also the Lord of the Rings, I believe, was an original Cosmos print uh, published game. That's really, I think that game's fallen out of favor in a lot of ways. It's a co-op game, but it in many ways laid the groundwork for pandemic and sort of the rise of co-op games. So it's one that I like to mention, but that's pretty cool. And then also when I was going back and sort of looking at some of the, I was trying to find interviews. Dr. Knizia has been really good in recent years. of so it seems like he'll talk to anyone about his games, which is amazing. We should probably see if he would talk to us one Ooh, day. Wouldn't that be, be cool. really cool? I mean, if he'll talk to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. We're someone. We're, we're anyone. We could be anyone to a Dr. Knizia. Yeah, exactly. That'd be so funny just just because of slandering his name so much. I know. We'd have to like somehow address it and it would be so <laughs> yeah. uncomfortable talking about yeah. Rhino Kinnis. How do we get there? Be like, what did I get myself into? Uh, yeah. We'll come back to that. But so I was curious about what the background of how do we end up here, right? Like what was the design history? We talked about that some in the Tigris and Euphrates episode. Actually, the last time we did a two-part episode, we talked some about the history of that design. It was really interesting. So I was curious if I could dig anything up on my city. Um, and a lot of what Knizia has said about this is that he wanted, you know, legacy games kind of came out of the scene with Pandemic. And many of the legacy games that were made were really heavy. They were built around these long sessions that, had players playing in a shared space that it was really tough to get them to the table and maybe get them back to the table because there was a lot of rules overhead and just the overall complexity felt like there was a lot to sort of sink into, which he felt prevented maybe more casual players from getting in on the legacy game idea. So he he knew he wanted to throw his hat into the ring. You know, he dives into whenever there's a sort of a breakout mechanism where I was going to get the Kinesia flair and his own take on it. So he knew he wanted to take on Legacy, but he thought what he could add personally was bringing something that was a little bit more rules light, a little more concise, and something that kind of trimmed down the best of Legacy into something that felt like a light casual experience for families. And I think that I, when I first played My City, I don't know that it jumped out to me that, oh yeah, Dr. Canizia is trying to make a simplified Legacy game. But now that I've heard him say that, it's so clear that that was sort of the design brief in a way, uh, and it really shows in the design. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so as well. It is interesting, though, that I don't feel like my city has, like, that's the Kinesia rule, you know, like how so often you can identify that in a game. Yeah. I don't know that they that there is that here. Yeah, I wonder if we'll, we'll get to that. There's some of the twists I found myself thinking, oh, only this is so smart. Almost yeah. anyone could have done this. But no one could have done this as well as Dr. Kinesia. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of it was That's just true. like, wow, the math is so perfect. Like the board yeah. designs are just so oh, perfect. Oh, the beautiful math of Dr. Kinesia. Yeah. <laughs> but, perfect math. You're teasing, the but it's numbers. so true. It's like yeah. just even the shape of the boards and stuff. I feel like his sort of footprint comes up, but I agree. There's no like, we're going to invert this whole idea. Though there's I a think, little bit of yeah. it. When you play the, the very first game of the legacy game, you're yeah. just kind of smacked in the head you're like of course this is so yeah so brilliant and obvious you know right how did no one bring Dude, this yeah. from the ether before this yeah yeah here i'll touch on some other quick points about it uh, one interesting thing is that the idea for a lighter legacy game arose before the theming of a city so they were looking for a he was looking for a theme that would sort of fit a way to have something exist through time he wanted it to sort of map loosely to a real life historical thing and came up with the city at that point. So I think that that's kind of cool that the idea for making a lighter legacy game even came before a theme. It wasn't like he sort of thought, oh, I want to make a city game. And then it became a legacy game. It was a legacy game that became a city game. One thing that he really stressed is testing this game was very difficult, uh, both because of its time intensive testing an entire campaign. But also if you make a change, say in episode three of the campaign, that's going to have consequences for episode 21. So it was really difficult having a sense of wanting to change something, knowing that it would impact everything that came after and having to judge how that would work. So the way that they, he and his sort of core group of playtesters play structured testing for this game is that they dedicated whole weekends to testing my city. They'd sort of get a new version and they go and just play it for a weekend. 
And then that'd be the play test. Go away, make some fixes, kind of he'd tweak things. And then another weekend later on, go back and spend a whole other weekend playing My City, the newest legacy version. And I imagine Dang. prepping for that would be really difficult too, like prototyping all the, the pieces and stuff. Dang. Those play testers yep. just working full weekends. That's crazy. Yep. <laughs> and then the paid other... overtime. Right? Oh my gosh. The final little anecdote. Can you imagine at, like asking somebody if for one of your designs, just be like, oh, actually, if you could just like block off an entire weekend to play test my new game. And maybe like 10 weekends. You need a doctor before your name uh, to get the, the weekend's privilege going. The final little nugget that I found that I thought was really interesting, Jake, was um, that once he designed the, key, the game, he knew he wanted Cosmos to be the publisher. He felt that they were the perfect fit. And typically when he pitches a game to a company, he'll sort of just see them at a big show, right? Or he'll have an annual visit with them, just already set up. And he said that for my city specifically, he called to set up a visit just for my city because he knew he wanted to pitch it to Cosmos. Uh, so he traveled to their offices, showed the game to them. And then four weeks later, uh, which he said was very fast for Cosmos, they had a deal and then it took a year and a half to actually get the game into print, which I think is very fast. In That's terms like speed running, publishing game. your board yeah. game. Totally, especially for a game of this sort of scope. There's just so many yeah. envelopes and everything. So it's really interesting right. because we know that it was a year and a half. We know that the game was really being worked on in sort of maybe 2016, 17, 18, leading up to its publication in 2020. It's pretty cool. Yeah, no, that that is that's really fast and yeah, especially with as intensive on the playtesting side thing, but also for the production side of things, right? So a lot of components, stickers, envelopes, as you said, to get all that right is a pretty a pretty awesome accomplishment, I think, from from both sides of that partnership. Yeah, definitely. Really cool. So that's kind of the history that I, I wanted to pull in and share. Keep it a little lighter this time. Uh, but yeah. Well, thank you, Brendan, for bringing that context to this game. Let's head over to your rules overview. And then on the other side, let's deep dive this thing. My City is a tile-laying polyomino game for two to four players. My City can be played as a legacy game, which introduces new rules and pieces throughout the course of 24 games in a campaign, or as a consistent standalone eternal game. This overview applies to the core of the game and how gameplay overall functions in both of these modes. In My City, there are three key elements, personal player city boards, in which players place their building pieces, the building pieces, which are polyomino shapes that come in three colors, blue, red, and yellow, as well as colorless church buildings buildings that each player has a personal set of for all of those building tiles, and a shared deck of cards with one card for each of the building pieces that players will place throughout the course of the game. Gameplay in My City is simultaneous. At the start of each turn, a card is randomly drawn from the deck of building cards, then each player adds the tile depicted on that card to their city board, adjacent to a piece they've previously placed, or on their first turn, adjacent to the river, which runs vertically through each player's board. While placing pieces, players are trying to efficiently pursue points from a number of different objectives. Players want to cover spaces showing rocks and light green spaces, which give negative points at the end of the game. They want to leave trees showing, as these will give positive points at the end of the game. They want to have each of the three building colors adjacent to the special church buildings, as these will give additional points for having all three colors, red, blue, and yellow, of buildings adjacent to them. And they want to have the largest possible contiguous groups of each building color. There's a few other ways to score in my city that change throughout the course of the campaign, but this should give you the gist of it, as the scoring is all about maximizing your pursuit of these overlaid objectives that you're pursuing simultaneously throughout the course of the game. On a given turn, players may optionally also choose to lose a point to pass on placing a tile, something they cannot do for churches. Churches must always be placed. If a player cannot play a church, they pass out of the game immediately and their play of that game is over. The game ends once all players have passed out of the game, either by choice or being unable to place a church, or once all the building cards have been drawn, at which point the player with the most points is crowned the victor. Thank you, Brendan, as always, for that rules overview. And I appreciate so much for you taking the notes from our listeners about getting it under three minutes um, this time around. <laughs> Doing my best. <laughs> I think that you know, rules overviews are, are appreciated to give people just a little bit of a better idea of how to play the game. And I am very appreciative of all the time you spend recording them.
My pleasure. We are going to do our classic deep dive on the decision space overall. So we're going to talk about the size and depth, the feel, maybe the type, the clarity. And again, this whole episode, we're talking Eternal Games. So it's sort of the the greatest hits of my city packaged all into one. And I want to say, Jake, I haven't mentioned this yet, but I feel like now is a natural time to mention this. I think that the Eternal Game is a great way to show people my city without mm-hmm. having the commitment needed of playing an entire campaign. So I had some family visiting recently, and we actually just sat down and played some Eternal Games of my city. They'd never played any of the campaign games, and it was perfect for that. It was a way to sort of say, hey, this is a game and an experience I love. Let me tell you, educate you about what a legacy game is. We're going to play this smaller, bite-sized, uh, one-chunk piece that a game of this will take us 20 minutes or so. And then we sat there and played it five or six times in a row, which was really lovely. Uh, but yeah. I think it just works so well at sort of encapsulating the game overall. At a treetop level, it's a really great gateway type of game, you know, in the Ticket to Ride or the Azul sort of category where you could show this to somebody who's never played any kind of like modern designer board game before. And I think it's as good as you'll find as a as an entry point for them because the, it's just so rules light i mean maybe you, you could you could definitely find rules lighter games than this but i i've found i re- also introduced it uh to a friend who's the dungeon master for the D group i've been playing with and he was interested in trying out some b- more board games and he just you know played like a few things here or there i think he had played like betrayal and i brought this over played with him uh and his wife and it was a huge hit that's awesome. Yeah, so it, this is really, it's its like a great gateway, early step experience. I think the polyomino pieces speak, you know, everyone speaks Tetris. Right. And I think that yeah. that works really well. It's also, in Tetris, interestingly, so one of the core rules of my city, let's just get this out of the way to start. You can't flip the pieces. You can only rotate them, which is also, I, I think that can be really frustrating for a lot of people who've maybe played Patchwork, where you can flip pieces upside down so you, every piece is the mirrored version. But I think that that sort of, I don't know, axial locking is not the right term, but that sort of locking of pieces to only be sort of right facing or left facing, you can still rotate them, obviously, right? 360, you can rotate them any direction in 90 degrees as many times as you would like. But I think that also kind of helps people who have only played Tetris because you can't flip pieces uh, in Tetris either. Like I can't take the Z that goes to the right, just like in my city, and make it a Z that goes to the left. It just it's always the one that kind of goes to the right. Uh, yeah. So that that didn't not work for the newer gamers that I shared it with. Yeah, but- and I think the other thing that just like makes the decisions in this game great for Gateway is that there's no like action. There's no like you can do these three things on your turn. It's just draw a card, place that tile with very simple placement rules. And all the complexity that exists in this game has to do with scoring. But- yep. You don't even really need to worry like if somebody was thinking like, oh, that's too much to think about the trees and the rocks and whatever else uh, you might be playing with. You don't even really have to. You could still like complete the process of playing the game without any of that. You know, anybody could draw mm. and place a tile. Yep. Yeah, totally. And you you want people to understand the incentives. Of course. It. Yeah. And but... people, and they're not hard to get either, but. You and know, you kind of like remind the actual you know. core gameplay loop is as simple and rudimentary as it gets. Totally. But what about the decision space? Yeah, because, let's talk about it. Okay, so within the Eternal game, it's structured very much like the campaign, right? We have that core deck of cards that we're playing onto our board, trying to achieve all of these um, overlaid objectives. So we're trying to surround a well. We're trying to make sure we have trees showing. We're trying to have contiguous groups of colors. We're also trying to cover up some gold veins that are showing on the board to be the first one at the table to do that. Uh, and we also want every color, there's three colors, uh, of course, of buildings surrounding all of our churches. So we have all these goals that we're going for. And then we have very little agency over when we're placing what pieces, but we do have complete agency over where they go so long as they're touching a piece that's already been placed. There's a pretty open decision space, and I think you feel that in a lot of ways. There's a lot of room for planning, and I think the more I play this game, especially the Eternal game, which I got to keep staying focused on the Eternal game is what we're talking about this episode, I think my my sort of arc with the depth of the Eternal game, Jake, is really interesting. Because when I first started playing, it felt like, oh, there's a real 
there's opening moves that I should follow, right? Like I've kind of settled into, I want to play mostly towards the center. Obviously you have to start on the river, but I'd love to get started on my well early uh, is sort of my, my initial heuristic. I want to finish that well because it's four points, you know, having it con- four buildings contiguous on all four sides. Um, that's a good early goal. And I think that's usually right. But I think that my city and the randomness and the variability in the way the tiles come out, there's actually a lot of exceptions to sort of rules or heuristics in this game where it's not always true that you should be doing something like that. And the what type of pieces come out when and what you're setting up for can really vary what you're what you're doing. So to me, you know, a hundred plus games in, I still like feel like I'm still solving a fresh puzzle every time. And to me, that's a, a sign of a fairly deep game for a game with such svelte rules. Yeah, I I think I would push back. I don't for me, I don't know that this game is particularly deep compared okay. to a lot of the games we cover. And I think for me, when I think about the decision space here, I have to recognize that essentially this is a flip and write game, right? Sure. You're, you know, you're not writing anything down, but you are flipping a card and, you know, placing that tile, which very easily could be pen and paper, right? And marking off that shape on your board. So I think that the structure is basically the same there. Um, and I, I find that those games aren't typically ones that have the most depth for me because of those heuristics that do yeah. come out. And I think the more I play this game too, I'm also learning. There's a lot to learn and like you can definitely level up in this game, but I think that only like to a point. Yeah. And then you're going to be reined in by that deck of cards, which means that every decision you make is only right or wrong based on the card flips that follow it, which to me gives me the permission structure to say like, like I too like that heuristic of trying to like start completing that first well or the the one well you have in the eternal game early on. Uh, usually with my first piece, I'll try and cover up one side with it. And it's I'd be hard pressed to think of any tile that you could draw on that first turn that, you know, because you're not going to know what comes next. That would make you want to like go away from that somewhat obvious heuristic. And then secondly, the, I think the depth kind of diminishes over the course of many, many repeated plays. I'm not saying there's no depths here. You know, I think there, I think this is a game you could play forever as a family game because of the randomness. But I do think the board itself is stagnant, right? You, the board never changes. Yep. The river never changes. And that means that you start to learn certain combinations of pieces that fit in the odd-shaped parts of it created by the river and you kind of can know in advance what patterns you can use there so that you know that makes those heuristics start you know coming out and you're like okay great i can use this piece here and then i'll just wait to get the you know the t block and the l block or whatever and that'll fix fill this in perfectly where you're sort of just like feeling it out in that first couple of games yeah, you get the joy of the discovering like, oh, the U shape fits really perfectly on the little mountain that sticks out and the little river that protrudes protrudes out on the left side of the board. So maybe I want to aim for that and setting that up. And it kind of becomes a new path through the decision space. And I agree with you, Jake. It's not the, I guess it's it's not the deepest decision space. And you're always kind of like chasing this ideal that must exist of how you want the pieces to be. But I guess I'm just surprised at how despite it maybe not being the deepest, how fresh it kind of consistently feels because of the variability of the pieces, despite the board always being stagnant. Like I do have those kind of like plays that I'm kind of chasing, but I always have feel like I have to mix up my plans somewhat and I'm making concessions. Yeah. I think some of the most interesting decisions in this game are not necessarily the placement decisions within the eternal game, because like you said, you kind of, you find your footing and what you want to be doing, but it becomes when you're making the decision not to do one of those things and kind of saying, okay, do I sacrifice and just slap the church down here? Or am I going to play a passing game where I'm, when do I pass? I think that those are the decisions that I tend to, that keep me coming back and becoming a better passer of I when I don't. totally agree. Yeah. I think the real depth of this game is once you've established those heuristics, then identifying the next level is of course, identifying when you can break them. Right. So it's like you the heuristic is you obviously want to, you know, build out your colors contiguously. Yep. But that will often clash with putting the churches. 
correct the churches or the correctly shaped tile you know yep. like if oh, i know the pattern that fills this out perfectly and i got that tile but it's actually in the wrong color do i place that somewhere else so that i you know hopefully i'll get the the right tile soon or do i just fill it up now or do i perhaps pass and all of that i think are definitely moments that skill comes into the game yeah. which will make it so more experienced players can find edges there, which of course speaks to depth. Another thing that I think hints in that direction somewhat is it's sort of like, as we go through this episode and talk about it more, I'm going to be really interested to get your take. But I think when I was first learning the eternal game, Jake, it was sort of like, well, maybe churches are the most important and I should be focusing on churches or maybe contiguous buildings are the most important. And that's what I need to focus on. Or maybe I'm just not covering up enough of those green spaces and I'm losing because I'm leaving too many green spaces covered up. Or maybe I'm focusing too much on making my pieces fit nicely together and I'd really get an edge if I went for the gold. So to me, part of the depth is all of those things are true. And it's in a given game, should I be pushing more towards that? Am I going to be making concessions about churches? Uh, Just they're going to come up late and I can't plan around them as well. So I know I'm going to be focusing more on contiguous colors. And obviously, 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 the answer is I want to do everything perfectly. And I want to score the optimal perfect number of points, but it's not possible. And you're going to have to pass sometimes. And I think that that's why it feels deep is like knowing, oh, this is a game where I'm going to have a lot of green spaces and that's fine. Or this is a game where I'll benefit if I leave a rock showing to me, leaving a rock showing, it just feels terrible. But there's yeah. times where you you leave a rock showing because you're going to score more points. And that's another thing where it, it starts to feel fun when you realize, okay, I'm not going to deal with this dumb little space on the right side of the board that has a rock on it below the gold because it's messing things up so i'm just gonna make my pieces fit together and i'm gonna take the negative two and it's gonna come out way better for it and and that's really fun and compelling and this game is part of the reason why it's so brilliant is all the the incentives are like perfectly balanced in a way in the eternal yeah yeah i i think so too and i also similar had a similar arc with feeling like at first it was all about for whatever reason i'm drawn to like the contiguous colors to me, it seems like, oh, there's a lot of point potential with these, like getting all, all, all your colors together. And it's the most aesthetically pleasing to me. Um, and I think now I've sort of shifted to where like my dominant heuristic is just trying to place tiles neatly. And I'll figure out the rest as it comes. I, I think yeah. that my scores increased when I start stopped, you know, passing as much and really just mm. like trying to play ultimately this is a tile placement game and like trying to play the tiles as they come up in most situations as optimally as I could and then trying to make things work as best I can inside of that overarching plan structure yeah yeah and I think that speaks to you know staying as good. open as possible and that's what you yeah. want in this you I feel like the game would not work as well if we could identify like, oh, it's all about the churches. Like yep. just focus on those and do really well. It's like, I think if one thing is to be the best, I would want it to be like doing the best job at placing tiles neatly. Sure. Or if it was, if there was a heuristic that was like always pass when the U's come up. Right. That, would, that wouldn't no, be would as interesting. Yeah, yeah, totally. What about, okay. So let's talk about the clarity song. So I think mm-hmm. one thing that's so interesting about the structure and design of this game is the deck. Kanitia almost always nails the design of card decks. And this game is driven by a deck, right? Like the central engine of the decision space of this game is just this simple deck of cards where every card corresponds to a shape. At the start of each turn, you flip one of those cards up and then all the players place what that shape is. There's the twist that one of the cards in that deck is actually a discard card that forces you to discard the next shape that comes. So you know every piece that you may be able to place in the game, meaning that you can really plan for specific shapes and places that they might go. Uh, And the game really encourages this. The churches wanting you to have specific colors that go around them really encourages that. The shape of the actual board and all the little uh, spots around the edges really encourages you to have certain shapes within them and then the contiguous colors puzzle also really encourages this by wanting you to have your colors grouped so the game on that end says plan 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 and it really gives you the tools to do that because you know that you're going to have the chance to place every piece possible but except for one and that one makes it really tough and i think the heuristics around that are really interesting and it makes the math easy because it's always pretty easy to calculate jake like what are the chances that i don't get the piece i need it's just like the deck divided by 
by whatever the the one card, right? So if there's like two cards left, 50% chance, three cards left, 33% chance. It's fairly intuitive math. And then you can always assume you'll get whatever piece you need until the deck wanes to a certain point. Yeah, yeah. The clarity is a really interesting case study here too. And I think for all the reasons you identified, it is on this knife edge of too clear, which would be, as as we've discussed, can be really frustrating in that it makes, I think a too clear decision space makes players feel dumb, right? We talked about that a lot in the uh, episode on In the Year of the Dragon, where the game feels brutal, not necessarily because of the bad events, but because you saw them coming ahead of time. And this game really flirts with that because you can, you have all your tiles laid out in front of you on the table. So you can see exactly what is going to come out and you can even start, you know, moving them around the edges of your board and think like, I'm going to put this there. I'm going to put that there, you know, and so on and so forth. But the fact that one of those is going to get removed, I think is something that really gives players permission to just play and have fun. And I think too, the fact that you have to play adjacent means that, okay, that's great. Right. That you had the idea of playing this, cross church or whatever the plus sign church in the top left corner but you have to play it right now and you don't have a way to put it there which i think that the which almost puts it then to the other side where it's just random right because if you have you know no real sense and we've actually some people in our discord i think who don't like this game as much as we do feel as though it's too random right it's just dependent on how that deck plays out and i think that's a big criticism of all of this genre of game right that's the same verb that's the same problem with like welcome to where strategies are only good or bad based on you know whether the strategy you start out pursuing works out based on the random sequence of cards flipped over where here i feel like it doesn't go too far into that because of the fact that you can like you have the visual of all the tiles and you can look at them and you can start planning out where they go. And now we're back on the other side. So I think that, you know, that might be the best piece of design. This whole game is how successful the clarity navigates those two huge pitfalls for me. Yeah, definitely. And I do really, I think we should stick on the planning a little bit because of all the games we've covered on the show. I think that, There's something so rewarding about the short-term, the mid-term, and the long-term planning of placing pieces in this game. It takes the the Baron Park one little one-by-one square statue idea, and it says, what if we just didn't limit that to a statue, but that, that idea of filling in a gap that exists on your board? What if the game just encouraged that and made that a regular part of play? And I think that that's it, it succeeds in that. I don't know if it was an aim, but you get that because you start to leave spaces that you almost certainly know you can fill in. And it's really yeah. rewarding when you like leave a space. You mentioned that cross shape. It's this the largest church. It's the hardest one to place. Uh, it's th- three by three. So it sort of crosses alongside itself. That's why we're calling it the cross church. And it, it's a janky piece. It's tough to fit on your board. So it's even more rewarding to get to plan where that's going to go, kind of envision it in your brain. And Jake, the more you play, you know, early on playing the Eternal game, it's kind of tough to remember what the tile set was, especially having played the campaign where they introduce some new shapes, which is very exciting. We'll talk about that more. Um, But once you sort of have the tile set, I love playing this game because I feel more than any game that I play, I'm like visualizing in my head what pieces and what color of pieces I want to fill in where. And it's so rewarding to like have that vision as a visual thinker and then get to execute on it three or four or five turns later. I don't know. I just, it's great. For me, that isn't always fun to be like identifying, memorizing the tile set, right? Like, I think there's a lot of similarities between this game and King Domino in that both are very light games that have sneaky, a lot of depth to them based on what you might expect from the rule set. But there you are, you don't, you don't get to see exactly yeah. what tiles are remaining and come out. So it rewards more memorizing and knowing what tiles are possible. Whereas here you don't have to keep anything in your head. You can look at exactly what all tiles are left and if you're playing 
you know, that's available on Board Game Arena. But if you're playing on the table, you could even start like moving things around your board, like the edge of yeah. your board and be like, this is kind of what I'm hoping to accomplish here. So I think it gives you all that same fun of planning and, you know, achieving these really feel good jackpot placement. And it eliminates sort of the busy work that I don't like as much in yeah. some of these other games. It helps too that the tile set is just the same tile set three times in different colors. That helps simplify it so much mm-hmm. compared to like patchwork where they're all different shapes. It's way easier to remember what shapes exist more quickly. So it kind of solves the problem of prior prior language or prior knowledge, excuse me, uh, which is also really smart. It's like good economic design stuff of like getting the most of what's there. Right. Okay. So this is, uh, we haven't said it, but obviously this is a waning decision space game. Your tile yep. set goes down. The cards, once they're flipped up, that is out of the game. Everything is diminishing. The number of places, the options you have, right. diminishes as you add more tiles. It feels like it, too. And it goes until you can't place anymore, which is a yep. hallmark of a waning decision space game. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because for a waning decision space game, the first half is pretty open and loose it doesn't feel super harsh right it has but then all of a sudden two-thirds of the way through the game it's sort of the walls close in and you're like i haven't left enough room for this piece yeah, i hope it, it doesn't it get ha- flipped it has that pivot point from like yep. maximizing points to like oh god i just need to like cover up as much space as possible before i can't place anything anymore yeah i want to can we characterize that as the the maximizing points to minimizing pain pivot yeah there you go like totally this game encapsulated yeah where it's like oh fell off the rails here a little bit and, and i think when that happens let's talk about it some because i think that the one thing that struck me the more i've played my city eternal game and this is true of the campaign too is the order that the tiles come out really does shape the feel of the game right when you get all of the churches fairly early mm-hmm. you get to plan around them more and it makes the game feel a little less harsh then when you're getting them all late and you're not able to plan for them as perfectly. And the same can be true of other variations of the same idea, right? So if you get all of one color early on, that leads to a really different feeling game than if you're getting different colors every time kind of rotating. And then the same is true again for the size of shapes. If you get all the little shapes early on, that's going to make for a really brutal game because all of a sudden you're going to have all these holes where you can't fit all of the bigger shapes that are coming later on together as well. And then vice versa, if you get all the big shapes early on, it can be really tough because you have to plan more for how these are fitting together and how you're going to fill them in. And I think that that's part of the appeal for me too, is the feel of the game really changes based on the how the cards randomly come out in a really pleasant way. That's one of my favorite things in board games, I think. I've talked about that a lot with Bruges and the Castles of Burgundy, where a game that allows you to play skillful in just a poor game. You know, and yeah. and this has that in spades, right? Depending on the way the tile set comes out, you'll have scores, you know, in the high 30s. I mean, low 40s, I'm sure is possible. Or you'll have scores where the winning score is like low 20s just because of how challenging the the tile set came out in. And I, I, I love that. Yeah. Because that's something that's kind of like one of these things that like, I think often goes unnoticed, but gives the game a lot of variability and makes you want to play it over and over again without needing to have like different stuff, like different variability, like put into the game in an intentional like player powers or variable board setup or, you know, all these things like it feels like more inherent to the core game, which I love. Yeah. And I think the other thing that kind of creates a feel is, that you have games that are just much more deterministic and mm. games that are, that feel like more random, which I think is great for a gateway game. And by that, I mean, if the, as you said, if like the, some of the big tiles and the churches come out early, um, then it's, you have a lot easier time navigating the space and avoiding massive pitfalls. But yeah. on the other hand, you can have games where through no real fault of your own, you, you could be like seven or eight cards left in the deck. And if that T church comes up, the plus church comes up, you're done then. And then yeah. it just kind of is comes down to random chance. If if that doesn't come up towards till towards the bottom, you're probably in good shape to win. But if it comes up right away, then you're going to lose. And that's that's nice for a gateway game where 
you know, kids family game where like a kid or a brand new player could beat somebody much more experienced through sort of the luck of the flop. And I think that's important to have. Absolutely. It's wild, Jake, that because of the mechanism, right, there's this mechanism that you can always pass on a piece and you lose a point, but you cannot pass if it's a church. You just end the game immediately. And I think that it's awesome how that almost adds just this tiny hint of press your luck at the end of some games where sometimes you'll sort of say, okay, I'm going to place this piece and then hope that the next, the church doesn't come up in the next two. And I, I think it makes for an exciting end game that is just fun. Sometimes you don't have an option and it's just this cool little, this cool little quirk about my city. It, it kind of, it scratches so many itches. I think we crushed this characterizing the decision space and, and talking <laughs> about a lot of the, the, core decisions in this game yep. should we talk a little bit about some of the special components of the eternal game like what was chosen to be included yeah i think that makes a lot of sense so let's just run down the full rules number one there's passing here there's gold veins there's trees uh, which is that you get two points for each tree showing there's rocks negative two points for each rock showing the contiguous color puzzle is here wells are here uh, so you score four points if you surround your well, and then you lose one point for every light green space. To me, this is like platonic ideal. Like he did it. Mm -hmm. This is exactly the way the game should exist. Yeah, I think, think I think we talked about a little bit about how you're pulled in all these different directions without anything being dominant. Yep. I don't know that I care about the gold veins being here. Why why do you like the gold veins? What I like the gold veins at? because sometimes the way the tiles come out they really you could really fit them nicely together and it's a so meaning that you'd be really clumped together around the pieces you first placed so that gives you a pretty specific feel but there's still this incentive to even in those games to kind of spread out across the board right to kind of go in this diagonal from the left gold vein to the right and i like that it encourages you a little bit to take risks that you might not otherwise take and kind of mix your play up. And sometimes the answer is I'll just ignore it. And if I ignore it, maybe Jake will ignore it. And that's fine. Maybe yeah. we'll both just get it on the same turn. And it doesn't matter. So I, I like that it just adds just this little bit of texture. I agree. It almost feels a little out of place compared to some of the other mechanisms. Yeah. I just don't know that it needs to be there. I don't think it's bad, but yeah. I don't feel like the, yeah, I think it maybe would be, I might slightly prefer it not to be here just for the sake of making this even more approachable for families. And you could certainly just say, we just don't play with that rule, whatever. But yeah, I think because I don't think there really is much drawback often to spreading out. I think yeah. players intuitively want to just like start by creating a really neat puzzle. It's the same thing yeah. as in King Domino, but as you play more and have a better understanding of what pieces can fit well where you actually yeah. are advantaged to spread out anyway. So it's kind of like a double plus incentive, which is the yeah, only thing that kind of works that way. It naturally gives you more options, which is better right. for a tile placement exactly. game. It increases your flexibility. Yeah, that's fair. The other sort of core elements that I think we should touch on, I didn't mention that list churches, uh, which we've discussed a lot. So maybe we can skip over that real quickly. But I want to talk about the river and the map design overall. Because I think that the river is sort of, perfectly placed in this in this game that it creates all these annoying little uh spaces that you have to optimize to fit in but in classic sort of family game fashion you could just cover up the trees if you don't want to so that's why there's lots of rooms for for mastery but also the board shape the design is pretty cozy you know playing the campaign there's like all these different sized boards of my city that you and i have played on now jake and i would describe the eternal game one as svelte and cozy like it's a smaller board which forces you to make more interesting passing decisions and at first i was sort of like there's no room to spread out here like why am i always all clustered up you know cramped but i've come to really appreciate that because it creates those interesting decisions around passing and placement a little mm -hmm. bit more like i like that it's smaller and, and it makes yeah. the game faster yeah i don't know if this is in my head or if it is actually a design goal, but it feels like the way the board is set up with the rocks and trees and river is that you really want to have, in many cases, the flipped over side of the Z-shaped shape. blocks or yeah. the L-shaped block. And maybe if it was, if we had the reverse side, I would feel the exact same way, you know? But it, I, I think that it's an example of Kinesia giving blunt, tools for like a specific puzzle you know 
the board, I think, is set up in a way that you don't have exactly the right type of shapes or combination of shapes to to maneuver throughout this without making sacrifices in one way or another, where you could have designed a board that is easier to say, like, if you if you nail it, you're just going to get all the points. And I don't yep. know that's really possible here because of yep. the, the shapes that have been included. It's great because it, it kind of has these problems designed into it. Like the top left space, uh, which I'm going to count as like above the little one tile of mountain that sticks out, that top left quadrant is just a problem child. Like it's always tough to fill in that yeah. top left small river space. And I love that because every time I'm playing, I'm sort of like, how can I tile out this space better? Like I feel like invariably I'm, I'm either dedicating too many little pieces to it or I've gotten lucky and like a lot of the big squares have come at the right time and like the timing just kind of works in my way. But I feel like invariably I'm like, how do I solve the problem of the top left, the northwest quadrant of this board? Like it's a mess. And it's fun, you know? Totally. All right, where should we go? You know, I was going to say, too, I think the similar one is, like, the bottom middle part of the river where, like, the river comes down. Um, that just little to the square right, shape. Just, yeah. you know, just to the right of that where you have, like, this kind of, like, zigzag. I feel like that is, it, it's the kind of thing where you, like, start placing oh. stuff there and you're just kind of like, okay, I'll have the pieces I need to fill this in. And if you're not careful, you'll just end up with, like, so much squandered space there. Yep. But I think too, that's like one of these areas where, okay, now I have some patterns in my head that I, that are my like go to's to like complete that without wasted space. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that's, you know, an interesting sort of one, but it also speaks to potentially, you know, over hundreds of plays where like the, the map being static is like, okay, these are the kind of viable combinations around here that will go to whenever allowed. Yep, this, this, or this. Like yeah. maybe there's there's a couple options, but you're doing this, this, or this. Yeah, you're not doing one of twenty. Things. So it's a, yeah, yeah, right. It's, it's like the more specific the map demands of you, in some ways, it kind of like reduces the depth. I think over the long yeah. term, but increases it over the short term because figuring that stuff out feels great, you know. So it, yeah. it's again kind of like walking this knife edge of learning and improvement and long term depth. Okay, I want to ask you one philosophical question. Then I think we should talk about like heuristics and scoring a little bit to close out the episode. But my question is, Jake, do you think it's ever the right decision to just cover the well? I certainly have won games covering the well before, but yeah. I think it's I think it's rare and requires it's like a high level type yeah. of decision, Gambit. right? Yeah. Where the only way that it's worth it because four points, you know, we're talking about a game that you're going to, you know, a winning score is going to be in, in the twenties often enough. Sure. Four points is a big chunk of it's that. It's meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to cover it up requires like identifying early on that this is going to be a low scoring game and that, and in those games, right, where you have like lots of unwieldy pieces coming out late, it's more likely that more will be sacrificed by the player trying to achieve the well right Sure, to force it yep yeah totally it's just that struck me as a good encapsulation because it feels so bad but it does feel like there's games where it might be the right decision yeah so i have some heuristics that i kind of put together i think that one big one for me that it sounds like you might disagree on so i'm interested to hear your take is that passing's okay to a point like you definitely in the eternal game you shouldn't feel like you have to place all the pieces, but at the same time, you shouldn't be passing more than three or four times in a game. Yeah, I think that the more I play this game, the more I think that passing is painful. So I don't know that I do agree with that. I think like I think each time you pass, it's like your opponent is getting a net gain of like two points or more, right? If they're placing it profitably and you're passing, it's it sure. should be pretty bad. And I think, yeah, I, th- I I hear you. There's definitely times, and I think especially like early on, you can get a big advantage by saying, you know what, I'm not even going to mess with this U-shaped block because there's nowhere I can place it right now that's going to help me. And if somebody else is placing it, it's going to hurt them more. But but I think my the the best games I've played of this are passing like once or twice. So Jake's heuristic is play, don't pass. Yeah, exactly. I think and my so. heuristic is tactically pass, but mostly yeah. play. Yeah, yeah. So somewhere, somewhere in there. 
And I feel like we one. really go back and forth in our plays too. Like neither of us yeah. has a clear edge. I think so too, which we'll talk about more on the next episode, I guess. Yeah. Spoilers, none there. But don't ignore churches. I think that's a fairly obvious one. That's like, obvious. You have to be getting at least two churches and really you should be getting three. Oh, yeah. I, I thought you were even just the more simple thing is like the the biggest mistake you can make is not leaving a space for one of the church shapes because then you just lose. That's like kind of the only auto lose condition would be halfway through the game and you're like, oh, my God, I don't have a room for this plus shape church, which has yep. happened to me a bunch of times. It's like an easy mistake to make. So definitely, you know, you have to as long as possible, leave space for those churches. Yep. I think another big one with churches is I always like to try to maximize the value of a placement by having one piece. If it's sort of like a red piece, it's red applied to two different churches. Right. That feels great. It's not always possible based on a placement. Another one is some games, it feels better to focus on making two of your groups the largest possible than trying to maximize all three. Uh, kind of using one of your colors as a whole filling color to me sometimes when you're getting lots of certain colors early on feels more optimal than trying to force a three color game when a two color game is probably the better way to go what do you think of that jake i think i might even just simplify that to just say like don't overemphasize contiguous groups i think that also is an easy trap to fall in you can definitely win this game you know if you're only getting like 10 total points off this i think because i think a lot of times you know, people make, it's very easy to make like just a bad decision of like, I'm going to place this here to get one extra point for red, leaving an open gap. That's like, okay, well you just canceled it out. Yeah. Right there. Because by placing that you had to leave an open green space or, or what right. if you had to leave a rock. Right. I think it's at, on its surface. You're like, Oh, a bunch of points can be had here, but you know, each individual point you're adding, you better make sure it's not at a cost of more than that more one single point you just got. Totally. Reality sets in too. The contiguous color puzzle is always like, it looks like, it feels like you could totally maximize. But yeah, the reality is, is usually you're not getting a ton from this. Right, exactly. I, we kind of talked about gold. Get the gold, but don't wreck your board. I don't know. I think, yeah, I think it's good. Prioritize gold. gold, perhaps. Yeah, it's important. You don't have to like make a huge mess, but like try to get it. And then I'll also say, just to close, anytime I score more than 40 in the in the Eternal game, I feel amazing. Like to me, a 40 plus score is just like, that was awesome. That was a really good game of my city. I don't even know that I've ever achieved that. Yeah? I Okay, I guess I've done it maybe a handful of times. And I'm looking at my scores right Maya now, I think, I. I think 30, se- I've got 37 and I've got a 36. Those are See, my high one, scores. Yeah, even high 30s are amazing. Yeah, most of the scores, I mean, like you said, Jake, one of the great things is you can have low 20s games where you come out winning just because it was such a brutal game. And I think that that's that's really fun. But 40s are possible. I have a win over you with 23. Yeah, nice. Nice. (laughs) You scored 17. Oh, these things happen sometimes. Yeah, no, they definitely do. Yeah, I mean, so I think it's an awesome game. Here's my, I want to leave you with... A hypothetical question. I don't even know, but here's a thought. There's something kind of interesting and strange about Eternal games being included in legacy games, which I think is puts owners in a weird position where it's difficult to, like so many games we have in our collection, we play, we enjoy for a while, and then we resell or we gift to friends. And it's really difficult to do that with this game. I wouldn't want to because I love it and i'm gonna keep it in my collection um for years and years maybe forever but i feel like what can you do with this game you know it's just this like interesting kind of addendum where people might be sitting there thinking like i did the legacy game and i'm done with it and i'm not interested in the eternal game though you should be but i think a lot of people might be predisposed from our other kind of important you know, memories with legacy games or whatever. And now you're just sitting with this game like stuck on your shelf. I just think that's like a weird thing. I think it is too. And I think that's partially why we wanted to structure our two-part My City deep dive in this way to just sort of say, don't ignore the legacy game or the eternal yeah. game, excuse me. It is a hidden gem. Yeah, if you are sitting on this on your shelf and don't know what to do with it, don't throw it away. Like just get, at worst, get rid of the legacy components in your box and give it to a friend. 
yeah to check out and let them yeah. play the eternal game yeah and, and just know you you have permission we're creating the permission structure that that is a very acceptable and kind gesture to do even if you're giving them a quote unquote like damaged product or whatever totally i will say too jake i I guess we should be clear about this there are a few pieces of the eternal game that you get in the envelopes from the legacy game but Mm -hmm. if you are listening to this and you're sort of like well i'd never play the legacy game of my city but you two have me really intrigued about the eternal game if you are in that position and you wanted to know sort of what pieces to pull out you could always come into our discord and we could talk you through what envelopes to grab what to pull out and how to get the eternal game it would take less than five minutes to set up Uh, it's so quick and maybe if you loved it, you'd want to go back or something. Awesome. All right. Yeah. Well, I think that puts a bow on our discussion of My City Part 1, The Eternal Game. And we hope that you'll join us next week as we discuss our experience playing the Legacy game thus far, our campaign against each other, and what all that experience was like and the decisions therein. Until next time, thank you to Hembry for our intro and outro song, Reach Out. Uh, And as always, you can find more things Decision Space on decisionspacepodcast.com or by joining the Discord in the link in our show notes. We'd love to see you there. Thanks for supporting Decision Space, and we'll see you next week. Bye, all. Thanks for 100,000 downloads. Bye.